Chapter Sixteen of Cleek, the Man of the Forty Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Cleek, the Man of the Forty Faces by Thomas W. Hanshu. Chapter Sixteen. It had but just gone five when Narkom walked into the little bar parlour and found him standing there, looking out on the quaint, old-fashioned bowling green that lay all steeped in sunshine and zoned with the froth of pear and apple blossoms, thick piled above the time-stained bricks of an enclosing wall. "'What a model of punctuality you are, old chap!' the superintendent said, nodding approvingly. "'Wait a moment while I go and order tea, and then we will get down to business in real earnest. Shan't be long.' "'Pray don't hurry yourself on my account, Mr. Narkom,' returned Cleek, coming down to earth out of a mental airship. "'I could do with another hour of that,' nodding toward the view, and still wonder where the time had gone. These quaint old inns, which the march of what we are pleased to call progress, is steadily crowding off the face of the land, are always deeply interesting to me. I love them. What a day! What a picture! What a sky! As blue as what Dollops calls the Merry Geranium Sea! I'd give a Jew's eye for a handful of those apple blossoms. They are divine! Narkom hastened from the room without replying. The strain of poetry underlying the character of this strange, inscrutable man, his amazing love of nature, his moments of almost womanish weakness and sentiment, astonished and mystified him. It was as if a hawk had acquired the utterly useless trick of fluting like a nightingale, and being himself wholly without imagination, he could not comprehend it in the smallest degree. When he returned a few minutes later, however, the idealist seemed to have simmered down into the materialist, the extraordinary to have become merged in the ordinary, for he found his famous ally no longer studying the beauties of nature, but giving his whole attention to the sordid commonplaces of man, for he was standing before a glaringly printed bill one of many that were tacked upon the walls, which set forth in amazing pictures and double-leaded type the wonders that were to be seen daily and nightly at Olympia, where, for a month past, Van Zant's Royal Belgian Circus and world-famed menagerie had been holding forth to crowded and delighted audiences. Much was made of two star turns upon this lurid bill. Mademoiselle Marie de Zanoni, the beautiful and peerless bareback equestrienne, the most daring lady rider in the universe, for the one, and for the other, Chevalier Adrian di Roma, king of the animal world, with his great aggregation of savage and ferocious wild beasts, including the famous man-eating African lion Nero, the largest and most ferocious animal of its species in captivity. And under this latter announcement there was a picture of a young and handsome man, literally smothered with medals, 
lying at full length, with his arms crossed, and his head in the wide-open jaws of a snarling, wild-eyed lion. "'My dear chap, you really do make me believe that there actually is such a thing as instinct,' said Narkom, as he came in. "'Fancy your selecting that particular bill out of all the others in the room. What an abnormal individual you are!' "'Why?' "'Has it anything to do with the case you have in hand?' "'Anything to do with it? My dear fellow, it is the case. "'I can't imagine what drew your attention to it.' "'Can't you?' said Cleek, with a half-smile. "'Then he stretched forth his hand and touched the word Nero with the tip of his forefinger. "'That did. "'Things awaken a man's memory occasionally, Mr. Narkom, and tell me— "'Isn't that the beast there was such a stir about in the newspapers a fortnight or so ago? "'The lion that crushed the head of a man in full view of the audience?' "'Yes,' replied Narkom, with a slight shudder. "'Awful thing, wasn't it? Gave me the creeps to read about it. "'The chap who was killed, poor beggar, was a mere boy, not twenty, "'son of the Chevalier de Roma himself.' There was a great stir about it. Talk of the authorities forbidding the performance and all that sort of thing. They never did, however, for on investigation—ah, the tea at last, thank fortune. Come, sit down, my dear fellow, and we'll talk whilst we refresh ourselves. Landlady, see that we are not disturbed, will you, and that nobody is admitted but the parties I mentioned. Clients? queried Cleek as the door closed and they were alone together. Yes, one, Mademoiselle Zélie, the Chevalier's only daughter, a slack-wire artist, the other, Signor Scarmelli, a trapeze performer, who is the lady's fiancée. Ah, then our friend the Chevalier is not so young as the picture on the bill would have us believe he is. No, he is not. As a matter of fact, he's considerably past forty, and is, or rather was up to six months ago, a widower with three children, two sons and a daughter. "'I suppose,' said Cleek, helping himself to a buttered scone, "'I am to infer from what you say that at the period you mentioned, six months ago, the intrepid gentleman showed his courage yet more forcibly by taking a second wife, young or old.' young said narkom in reply very young not yet four-and-twenty in fact and very very beautiful that is she who is featured on the bill as the star of the equestrian part of the programme mademoiselle marie de zanoni so far as i've been able to gather the affair was a love-match the lady it appears had no end of suitors both in and out of the profession it has even been hinted that she could, had she been so minded, have married an impressionable young Austrian nobleman of independent means who was madly in love with her, but she appears to have considered it preferable to become an old man's darling, so to speak, and to have selected the middle-aged chevalier rather than someone whose age is nearer her own. "'Nothing new in that, Mr. Narkom. 
Young women before Mademoiselle Marie de Zanoni's day have been known to love elderly men sincerely. Young Mrs. Baudry in the case of the nine-fingered skeleton is an example of that. Still, such marriages are not common, I admit, so when they occur one naturally looks to see if there may not be other considerations at the bottom of the attachment. Is the chevalier well-to-do? Has he expectations of any kind? To the contrary. He has nothing but the salary he earns, which is by no means so large as the public imagines. And as he comes of a long line of circus performers, all of whom died early and poor, expectations, as you put it, do not enter into the affair at all. Apparently the lady did marry him for love of him, as she professes and as he imagines. Although, if what I hear is true, it would appear that she has lately outgrown that love. In short, that a Romeo more suitable to her age has recently joined the show, in the person of a rider called Signor Antonio Martinelli, that he has fallen desperately in love with her, and that— He bit off his words short and rose to his feet. The door had opened suddenly to admit a young man and a young woman, who entered in a state of nervous excitement. "'Ah, my dear Mr. Scarmelli, you and Miss Zelie are most welcome,' continued the superintendent. "'My friend and I were this moment talking about you.' Cleek glanced across the room, and, as was customary with him, made up his mind instantly. The girl, despite her association with the arena, was a modest, unaffected little thing of about eighteen. The man was a straight-looking, clear-eyed, boyish-faced young fellow of about eight-and-twenty, well, but by no means flashily dressed, and carrying himself with the air of one who respects himself, and demands the respect of others. He was evidently an Englishman, despite his Italian nom de théâtre, and Cleek decided out of hand that he liked him. "'We can shelve George Headland in this instance, Mr. Narkom,' he said, as the superintendent led forward the pair for the purpose of introducing them, and suffered himself to be presented in the name of Cleek. The effect of this was electrical. Would, in fact, had he been a vain man, have been sufficient to gratify him to the fullest, for the girl, with a little, "'Oh!' of amazement, drew back and stood looking at him with a sort of awe that rounded her eyes and parted her lips, while the man leaned heavily upon the back of a convenient chair, and looked and acted as one utterly overcome. "'Cleek!' he repeated, after a moment's despairful silence. "'You, sir, are that great man? This is a misfortune indeed.' "'A misfortune, my friend? Why a misfortune, pray? Do you think the riddle you have brought is beyond my powers?' "'Oh, no, not that, never that,' he made reply. "'If there is any one man in the world who could get at the bottom of it, could solve the mystery of the lion's change, the lion's smile, you are that man, sir, you. That is the misfortune, that you could do it, and yet I cannot expect it cannot avail myself of this great opportunity. Look, 
I am doing it all on my own initiative, sir, all for the sake of Zelie and that dear, lovable old chap, her father. I have saved fifty-eight pounds, Mr. Cleek. I had hoped that that might tempt a clever detective to take up the case. But what is such a sum to such a man as you? If that is all that stands in the way, don't let it worry you, my good fellow, said Cleek with a smile. Put your fifty-eight pounds in your pocket against your wedding day, and good luck to you. I'll take the case for nothing. Now then, what is it? What the dickens did you mean just now when you spoke about the lion's change and the lion's smile? What lion, Nero? Here, sit down and tell me all about it. There is little enough to tell, heaven knows, said young Scarmelli with a sigh, accepting the invitation after he had gratefully wrung Cleek's hand and his fiancée with a burst of happy tears had caught it up as it slipped from his and had covered it with thankful kisses. That, Mr. Cleek, is where the greatest difficulty lies. There is so little to explain that has any bearing upon the matter at all. It is only that the lion, Nero, that is, the chevalier's special pride and special pet, seems to have undergone some great and inexplicable change, as though he is at times under some evil spell, which lasts but a moment and yet makes that moment a tragical one. It began, no one knows why nor how, two weeks ago, when, without hint or warning, he killed the person he loved best in all the world, the Chevalier's eldest son. Doubtless you have heard of that. Yes, said Cleek, but what you are now telling me sheds a new light upon the matter. Am I to understand, then, that all that talk on the bills and in the newspapers about the lion being a savage and a dangerous one is not true, and that he really is attached to his owner and his owner's family? That is the truth, replied Scarmelli. Nero is, in fact, the gentlest, most docile, most intelligent beast of his kind living. In short, sir, there's not a bite in him and added to that he is over thirty years old. Zelie, Miss de Roma, will tell you that he was born in captivity, that from his earliest moment he has been the pet of her family, that he was, so to speak, raised with her and her brothers, that as children they often slept with him, that he will follow those he loves like any dog, fight for them, protect them, let them tweak his ears and pull his tail without showing the slightest resentment even though they may actually hurt him. Indeed, he is so general a favourite, Mr. Cleek, that there isn't an attendant connected with the show who would not, and indeed has not at some time, put his head in the beast's mouth, just as the chevalier does in public, certain that no harm could possibly come of the act. You may judge, then, sir, what a shock, what a horrible surprise it was, when the tragedy of two weeks ago occurred. Often, to add zest to the performance, the chevalier varies it by allowing his children to put their heads into Nero's mouth, instead of doing so himself, merely making a fake of it that he has the lion under such control that he will respect any command given by him. 
That is what happened on that night. Young Henri was chosen to put his head into Nero's mouth, and did so without fear or hesitation. He took the beast's jaws and pulled them apart, and laid his head within them, as he had done a hundred times before. But of a sudden an appalling, an uncanny thing happened. It was as though some supernatural power laid hold of the beast, and made a thing of horror of what a moment before had been a noble-looking animal. For suddenly a strange hissing noise issued from its jaws, its lips curled upward until it smiled, smiled, Mr. Cleek. Oh, the ghastliest, most awful, most blood-curdling smile imaginable, and then, with a sort of mingled snarl and bark, it clamped its jaws together and crushed the boy's head as though it were an eggshell. He put up his hands and covered his eyes as if to shut out some appalling vision, and for a moment or two nothing was heard but the low sobbing of the victim's sister. "'As suddenly as that change had come over the beast, Mr. Cleek,' Scarmelli went on presently, "'just so suddenly it passed, and it was the docile, affectionate animal it had been for years. It seemed to understand that some harm had befallen its favourite, for Henri was its favourite, and curling itself up beside his body it licked his hands, and moaned disconsolately in a manner almost human.' "'That's all there is to tell, sir, save that at times the horrid change, the appalling smile, repeat themselves when either the chevalier or his son bend to put a head within its jaws, and but for their watchfulness and quickness the tragedy of that other awful night would surely be repeated. Sir, it is not natural. I know now—' as surely as if the lion itself had spoken, that someone is at the bottom of this ghastly thing, that some human agency is at work, some unknown enemy of the Chevalier's is doing something, God alone knows what or why, to bring about his death as his son's was brought about. And here, for the first time, the Chevalier's daughter spoke. "'I tell him all, Jim,' "'Tell him all,' she said, in her pretty broken English. "'Monsieur, may the good God in heaven forgive me if I wrong her. "'But, but—ah, Monsieur Cleek, sometimes I feel that she, my stepmother, and that man, that rider, "'who knows not how to ride as the artist should, monsieur, I cannot help it, "'but I feel that they are at the bottom of it.' "'Yes, but why?' queried Cleek. I have heard of your father's second marriage, mademoiselle, and of this Signor Antonio Martinelli, to whom you allude. Mr. Narkom has told me. But why should you connect these two persons with this inexplicable thing? Does your father do so, too? Oh, no! Oh, no! she answered excitedly. He does not even know that we suspect Jim and I. He loves her, monsieur, "'It would kill him to doubt her.' "'Then why should you?' "'Because I cannot help it, monsieur. "'God knows I would if I could, "'for I care for her dearly. "'I am grateful to her for making my father happy. 
My brothers, too, cared for her. We believed she loved him. We believed it was because of that she married him. And yet, and yet, ah, monsieur, how can I fail to feel as I do when this change in the lion came with that man's coming? And she, ah, monsieur, she is always with him. Why does she carry favour of him and his rich friend? He has a rich friend, then? Yes, monsieur. The company was in difficulties. Monsieur Van Zandt, the proprietor, could not make it pay, and it was upon the point of disbanding. But suddenly this indifferent performer, this rider, who is, after all, but a poor amateur, and not fit to appear with a company of trained artists, suddenly this Signor Martinelli comes to Monsieur Van Zandt to say that if he will engage him, he has a rich friend, one Signor Sperati, a Brazilian coffee planter, who will pack the show with his money and buy a partnership in it. Of course, Monsieur Van Zandt accepted, and since then, this Signor Sperati has travelled everywhere with us, has had the entree like one of us, and his friend, the bad rider, has fairly bewitched my stepmother, for she is ever with him, ever with them both, and, and, ah, oh, mon Dieu, the lion smiles, and my people die. Why does it smile for no others? Why is it only they, my father, my brother, they alone? Is that a fact? said Cleek, turning to young Scarmelli. You say that all connected with the circus have so little fear of the beast that even attendants sometimes do this foolhardy trick. Does the lion never smile for any of those? Never, Mr. Cleek, never under any circumstances. Nor does it always smile for the chevalier and his son. That is the mystery of it. One never knows when it is going to happen. One never knows why it does happen. But if you could see that uncanny smile— I should like to, interposed Cleek. That is, if it might happen without any tragical result. Hmm. Nobody but the Chevalier and the Chevalier's son. And when does it happen in their case? During the course of the show, or when there is nobody about but those connected with it? Oh, always during the course of the entertainment, sir. Indeed, it has never happened at any other time, never at all. Uh-huh, said Cleek. Then it is only when they are dressed and made up for the performance, eh? Hmm, I see. Then he relapsed into silence for a moment, and sat tracing circles on the floor with the toe of his boot. But of a sudden— You came here directly after the matinee, I suppose? He queried, glancing up at young Scarmelli. Yes. In fact, before it was wholly over. I see. Then it is just possible that all the performers have not yet got into their civilian clothes. Couldn't manage to take me round behind the scenes, so to speak, if Mr. Narkom will lend us his motor to hurry us there. Could, eh? That's good. I think I'd like to have a look at that lion, 
and, if you don't mind, an introduction to the parties concerned. No, don't fear. We won't startle anybody by revealing my identity or the cause of the visit. Let us say that I am a vet, to whom you have appealed for an opinion regarding Nero's queer conduct. All ready, Mr. Narkom? Thanks. Then let's be off. Two minutes later the red limousine was at the door, and stepping into it with his two companions he was whizzed away to Olympia, and the first step towards the solution of the riddle. End of chapter 16